Father, as we look over the panorama of human history, there has been so much war and heartache and loss and pain. And yet your word declares to us that you are not aloof. You are present and you are engaged and you are the defender of your people. Lord, we look back at the panorama of our own lives. We are well aware and acquainted with pain and heartache and loss, but your word declares to us that you are the defender of your people. And so as hard as it is for some in this room to sing in this moment right now, we say we trust you. Because when this is all said and done, we will look back and declare that you are good and you are righteous and you are in control and you are not aloof and you are up to something far bigger than we could even possibly understand. And we thank you that from beginning to end, you are God and no one else. We love you. We pray this time in your word would encourage us and would build us up in Jesus' name. Amen, Ville Church. Amen. You may be seated. Would you do me a favor? Would you open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9? Um, this morning, we are actually finishing our series on Genesis 1 through 11. We're going to be looking at Babel. Um, and I want to give you like a sneak peek, maybe into the summer and into the fall. Uh, over the next two weeks, uh, I'm going to be doing a message. I'm not even going to tell you what it's about. I'm just going to give you a little cliffhanger. Um, I want to share with you um, one of the primary practices of the early church that almost single-handedly allowed the church to go from 12 young men, a handful of ladies, in about 250 years to become the dominant group of people in the Roman Empire in the world. Uh, I want to share with you that, and, and it's a practice that the church neglects when it's the majority, but it's a practice that the church can no longer neglect when it becomes the minority, especially the minority culturally. So I'm not going to tell you what it is. I'm going to leave you hanging. I want to challenge you to come back, because if, 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 if you want to see people come to Christ and you neglect this one singular practice, you're going to be missing the boat for this upcoming generation in the next couple decades of being an American Christian. Sound good? That's, that's next week and the week after. And then we're going to do a four-week series called Healthy Church. We're going to be looking at healthy vision, healthy leaders, healthy church members. And we're going to be looking at a healthy church from a few different perspectives. And we want to actually do this to encourage you. Um, this is a weird time in Christendom in America and the world. And so what we want to do is give you something that would encourage you, ground you, and also give you something that you can give your friends and say, hey, as you're wrestling through the realities of the American church all over the country. Here are some things that we just want to land on and encourage you with, a metric. Um, also, we want to uh, share with you what our desire and passion is as a group of elders at the church and leaders here to show you, like, this is our desire. This is one of our values. Uh, we want to be healthy before the Lord, healthy according to the Word of God. So that'll be a four-week series. Really, really excited about that. And then in the fall, um, we're going to be jumping back into Genesis, and we're going to be picking up, actually, right where we left off, doing a study on the life of Abraham. Sound good? All right, sounds good. One of you is excited. The rest of you are like, prove it to me, man. Let's see how good it can really be. Okay, fine. Uh, today, I want to introduce you to the birth of Babylon, uh, to the birth of Babylon. In fact, I'll share with you something that probably the majority of you in this room uh, do not know. Uh, so the Hebrew word for Babel is, guess what? Babylon, uh, transliterated, if you will, B-A-B-E-L. That's probably the most literal way to say it. Um, do you know what the Hebrew word for Babylon is? Babel, B-A-B-E-L. And so you should be at this point asking yourself, well, then why did they translate it in Genesis 11 as the Tower of Babel, but literally every other instance in the Bible, it's 
Babylon when it's actually the same word? I don't have a good answer for you. I'm going to be honest with you. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, But really what we're looking at is the birth of Babylon. Babel is Babylon, uh, not just inferentially. It is literally the exact same word rooted in the exact same geographical location. So Babel or Babylon has two meanings in the Bible. Uh, Number one, it's a literal city with multiple iterations. And here's Uh, what that means. Um, It actually existed historically. We know that. uh, Secular uh, historians know that. Everybody knows that. Babylon uh, was an incredibly influential, powerful city, but it's sort of like the city of Chicago. Um, Since the 1800s, there has been one city of Chicago, but it has looked different about every decade after that. So if you went back in time into Chicago in the late 1800s, you would experience a very different Chicago. It might even have some different values, systems, organization, leaders, and about every 10 to 20 years, the city of Chicago has morphed and transformed. Now, if you fast forward, even over the last 20 years, I lived downtown Chicago in 2001, 2, and 3. The Chicago I lived in is very, very different than the Chicago that exists now. Don't get me wrong, there's some similar landmarks, etc., but the city, especially even where I lived, is really, really, really different. And so you have to understand something, that when you read about Babel and Scripture, there are many iterations of Babel. Um, One city founded here, Genesis 11, um, ultimately grew into Babylon, but at different times this location was ruled by Assyria and Greece and Rome, Um, but Babylon had many iterations throughout history. But number two, and this is I think going to be really important for you, if you want to understand particularly the New Testament and how the New Testament understands Babylon or Babel, Um, it became a symbol Uh, It became a symbol because Babylon is now the symbol of the pinnacle expression of human rebellion. Uh, I put it up here so you could just see this. Uh, It becomes a symbol, an archetype, a representative. It's humanity's unified ambition to dethrone God and declare independence. It's to say, we know what you want of us. We don't want it. We're going to do our own ways, and we're going to build a city and an empire and a nation and a religion that is in direct opposition to what we know you want, and we're going to build our own thing. The Babylon, or Babel, was not just built off of my father's faith. It was actually built as clear opposition to what they knew Yahweh wanted from them. And so the origin of this city is rebellion, but Babel or Babylon, all throughout Scripture, sometimes refers to an actual historical city. But once you get into the New Testament, almost always it's referencing um, a larger power. So Rome is considered to be Babylon. Uh, It's almost like you imagine some early Christians uh, in the first century and they're talking to each other and they know that Rome is trying to exterminate Christianity. And so as a nickname, they call it Babylon. Now, is it literally Babylon? And the answer is no, it's literally Rome. But, But every single empire or nation or group of people that rose up in independence against God and oppressed his people, the nickname for that, the archetype, the symbol for that was Babylon. So you're going to find this. uh, At the end of this, we're going to see a handful of scripture from the book of Revelation, and you're going to watch Babylon metaphorically as a symbol come up. And there will be another future Babylon, just as there was historical symbols of Babylon. Now, I want to give you some context for Genesis chapter 11. Um, Nimrod is the man. Nimrod is the first world leader. He is the first world dictator, the first world emperor that we know of. He is from the line of Cush, which is where we get modern-day Ethiopia, probably very dark-skinned or black, uh, who is also from the line of Ham, who is also from the line of Noah. Noah had three sons, uh, Ham, Shem, and 
Japheth. You guys are geniuses. I love it. It's like you're listening. It's wonderful. Uh, and Ham's descendants, uh, everywhere they went, um, generally speaking, rebelled uniquely against God. And so Babel was Nimrod's first large-scale um, adventure, if you will, of building a city, building something large. Now, Nimrod would actually go from here to build Nineveh, and he is singularly responsible for building some of the largest cities of the ancient world. Now, if you open up your notes with me, point number one, you're going to see a funny word. It's the word ziggurat. I'm just going to hold you in tension, uh, and I'll explain soon enough what this means. But point number one is this. Village Church, what is your personal ziggurat? Verse one, chapter 11. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled here. Now, I want to ask a question. Why are they migrating? And the answer is really simple. God gave Noah and his sons a very, very clear commission. Here's what it is. I want you to see this. Genesis chapter 9. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And he says, increase greatly on the earth. And in the context of this, this is a reiteration of God's command to Adam, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. So Noah and his sons were be, to be the new Adam. In fact, one of the things that God wanted to make clear to Noah and his sons is that I want you to fill the whole earth. Don't stop. Keep going. Make sure that there is God image bearing representation on every single part of the landmass of this earth. I want my glory everywhere. And the way my glory is going to be most clearly seen on every parcel of land throughout the entire earth is if image bearers um, live there and then worship me. And this is what God wants. He wants them to spread. He wants them to disperse. Verse three goes on. It says, and they said to one another, by the way, they, uh, meaning the Babylites, knew, 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 knew what God wanted. Okay. This wasn't just because their father's father's father told them. They knew that Yahweh was real and they knew Yahweh's command. They knew what Yahweh wanted for them, okay? This is not like um, the person now, the kid now, who grows up in a false religion multiple generations removed from the source, okay? Uh, you need to understand that. For, verse three, they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and, for, brick for stone and bitumen for mortar, so we, we've heard so far that the line of Ham has introduced the world to the greatest technological advancements and achievements for probably the first few thousand years of history um, after Noah and the flood. And what's interesting is that um, what God is communicating is that they have brought a new technological advancement to human history that will change architecture forever as they know it. So the typical brick that was dried in the sun um, could build a structure before it collapsed in on itself, roughly 500 feet tall. So what happened is they realized when they burned the bricks, um, it increases their strength eight times the normal amount. And it's said that um, these bricks built on top of each other could build um, what we would call some structure, some architectural structure up to 10,500 feet tall without imploding on itself. And technology takes that which is absolutely, utterly, and totally impossible, and it makes it easy. Isn't that crazy? Like, imagine 200 years ago, somebody said to you, we're gonna go to the moon, <laughs> right? And then, then literally, 
they're on the moon. I mean, it's, it's an unbelievable technological achievement, but uh, now for people to go into space or just think about how many thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people currently right now are in the air flying above the clouds, in the clouds. Like that is an impossibility of a thought 200 years ago, not even in the imagination of plausibility. And now it is our normal everyday life. You can literally travel anywhere in the world within 24 hours if you have enough money and a fast enough plane. It's unbelievable. Verse four, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. And so now they have experimented and they're testing out this new technology and here's what they find. We can do something no one has ever done before in the history of the world. We'll go down in history. Like we are going to literally change the world and build an architectural wonder that no one has ever seen in the history of the world. Ba Babel has four sinful ambitions in this text. And I want to show you each one of them. They said, come, let us, let, let, let us build ourselves a city. Um, cities prevent migration. I want you to understand this. Um, and they promote collaboration and techno technological advancement. Now, Village Church, is collaboration and technological advancement a good thing? The answer is yes. Unified image bearers are unstoppable. We can do almost anything that we set our minds to if you give us a unified space, resources, and language, we can accomplish anything. It's powerful. I mean, there are things right now in your mind that you think are never gonna happen, aren't even plausible. You give human beings a thousand years of shared language, shared space, and unlimited resources, and I will show you plausible realities in the future that we can't even consider if we had enough time. It's unbelievable, unstoppable when they come together, which is awesome if people are good, if they're good. Uh, if you consider um, the last 150 years of technological advancement, here's a little equation that might help you understand how this works. Less distance plus shared language equals exponential innovation. Again, this is awesome if you're good. Uh, you think about Google. I have no issues with Google. I mean, by and large, they're literally Google's probably making half of your lives function right now. Your phones don't exist if they don't work, right? They're creating an infrastructure and aggregating more knowledge and information than any institution or human being can plausibly understand. They are the functional God with the answers to everything, which is fine if they're good, right? But if they're evil, what happens to that power? You get the point. Technology is amazing, it changes the world, changes our lives. It takes that which is impossible and makes it easy. But if the heart of the people, it, I'm not just talking about Christians and non-Christians, if it is malicious to humanity, it is unstoppable evil that can happen. So building a city wasn't bad. But here's the problem, they're building a city for everyone so that no one leaves. Which again, nowadays is fine. But that wasn't what God told them to do, was it? God was very clear. This is not about you building a city for everyone so that no one leaves. I have a desire that before you build up, you build out. 
I have a desire that image bearers are on every single acre of the land of this earth. I desire that for the glory of God, this entire earth is subdued and ruled for the good of the earth and for the good of the people. This is what God wanted. And this was not, this was not what they were looking to do. Babel was built in rebellion against God to prevent people from migrating. That's what this is about. Now, some of you, you're gonna say to yourself, I, if I were the Babelites, I would never, ever, ever do that, right? I, I'm reading this and I'm thinking to myself, I'm better than them. There is no impulse in me that would do this kind of thing. And I would never buy or build something that would prevent me from doing something that God wants me to do. Um, I want to just show you just for a moment, would you humor me? And I want to show you how maybe, just maybe, that in the vast majority of us in this room, if not all of us, the spirit of Babel is deep, deep inside of us. Hypothetically, you have the opportunity to invest in a stock that is 100% guaranteed. Now, this is like good odds. Now, you have insider trading, clearly, so you'll go to jail if you do this, but uh, guaranteed to make you millions and millions of dollars. There's no question this is happening, okay? It's like back to the future. You have the world's almanac. You go back in time. You're like, I know what's going to happen, right? You just know, okay? Millions and millions of dollars, but supporting the stock is supporting something that God actively opposes. No one will know someone's gonna make the money, you tell yourself, it might as well go to the kingdom, right? What do you do? Now, how many of you would love to say, just that little rationale that I gave you might be enough to say, yeah, sure, I'll take it. Like, I mean, I'd rather the money be with the church and for the glory of God, right? I mean, who cares if we're supporting something God absolutely hates, right? But in their little piece of you that's like, I could see myself doing that. I could see myself buying something or building something in rebellion against God justifying it really is just so that I could be rich. You have the opportunity, hypothetically, to be a CEO of a healthy, growing company, make a ton of money, and build an incredible resume, but God says, no. I want you to stay where you're at and be broke the rest of your life. What do you do? Isn't there a little piece in you that would find any reason in your heart and your mind to figure out a way to take that job? Like, isn't it amazing how the wheels start turning? Like, I know he said no. I know he said don't buy this, don't build this. He wants me to just stay here. He wants me to do this. But isn't there something inside of you that's like, I think I'd rather buy and build something that gives me power and more money and more stuff, even though God is telling me not to do it? You have the opportunity, this might get a little personal, uh, to date a guy or girl of your dreams, so handsome, so fun, so funny, right? Everything you ever wanted, but they're not a Christian. You get to build a family. There's finally the opportunity. You know if they propose to them or they propose to you that this could happen. They really could be the one, but they don't love God. And even though God's word has already told you no under no circumstances, aren't you still a little tempted? Aren't you, aren't you tempted to build a family, to build this thing, even though God says not to do it? That spirit of rebellion inside of the Babylonians, the Babylites, whatever you want to call them, is inside of each one of us. And it's interesting because here's, here's what every Christian is tempted to do when you read these stories. You, you're tempted to say, that's not me, that's them, I'm better. And what I love about the stories of the Old Testament is it doesn't matter how dumb they are, there is a little piece of every single one of us in these people. Second, Babel's second sinful ambition, to build a tower up to the heavens. Now, this tower is actually literally called a ziggurat. Now you know what it is, and here's a picture of what a very common ancient ziggurat might look like. There's some things that you need to know about 
ziggurats. And the reason we have to tell you this is because I don't want you thinking for a moment that this is a religiously neutral building. This isn't like a political office. It's not like a restaurant. It's not like an office building where it's like there's no agenda here. Um, Wherever you find ziggurats, wherever you find them all over the world, um, here's what you're going to find. They are always, 100% of the time, places of worship to false gods who, there's always a common denominator, they offer you your heart's desire now at a steep and personal cost. This is the nature of false religion. Everywhere you find it, everywhere you find a ziggurat, God, the gods offer you your heart's desire now at a personal and steep cost. Always used for religious purposes, and, and here are the standard religious practices throughout antiquity that ziggurats were used for. Snake worship, sun and moon worship, obscene fertility rites and cults, worship of multiple gods and goddesses, uh, human sacrifice, which most commonly is child and infant sacrifice that would happen oftentimes at the top of these ziggurats and more. I want to say this again because I need you to get this. They did not build this because this was simply their father's or the grandfather's religion. They built this in explicit opposition to what they knew Yahweh wanted for them. This was built, I want you to hear me, to give Yahweh the middle finger. That's what this was. This, there, there is nothing just, well, this is just what I've always ever known. This was built in rebellion. Babel's third sinful ambition, to build ourselves a name. A primary human impulse in every one of us is to give glory. Our instinct as human beings is to be glory givers. This is just what we do. So there are two levels of glory giving that I want to draw your attention to. One is ultimate glory to God. You might call this worship. I don't care what you call it, but there is, there is a good form of glory giving where you want to give accolades, applause, cheer, speak highly of, make their name great, right? You want to do this to God. This is what worship is called. You are created by God to be a glory giver. And when you're giving glory in the right way, ultimate glory goes to God. There's another level of glory, which is affirmation glory. And this is where we encourage and build other people up. It's fair to say, man, I really appreciate um, that you're really skilled at this. I really appreciate what you can do. Um, We love encouragement. We love being built up. Now, the idea of, of horizontal glory is this, that when you give me glory, my heart doesn't say, you're right. I'm an unbelievable human being and God's gift to all of the world, right? Right? My my son, uh, this is every time I say to him, hey man, good job. He's like, I know. I know, right? Like, I am great. It's really funny. He has no sense of humility yet. We're going we're gonna to discipline that into this kid. Um, but affirmation glory, it's a great thing, and we build each other up. What's interesting is that sin perverts both of these in massive ways. Uh, when I give glory to anything other than God, it's called idolatry. It's called false religion. Okay? Uh, and there's something inside of us that takes this instinct, this impulse to give God as much glory as possible and spread it around to other false things. Uh, it's interesting because you see this glory-giving instinct in us, and it's not, it's not just in concerts, right? But it's the way we interact with, with Hollywood. Like, imagine your favorite actor walks through the doors, and you're like, oh my gosh, can you believe it's Brad Pitt? Right? Oh my gosh, can you believe it? He's here. What are we like, you get nervous, right? Glory giving, right? You get nervous before that which you want to give glory to, right? Your favorite musician comes in, right? And you're like, can you believe who it is, right? Your heart is wired as a glory giver. You find it in, in sports teams, right? Everybody comes together and they're like, they're amazing. And they throw the baseball at you and sign it. You're like, I got it. 
football with his name. It's unbelievable. We put up their jerseys, right, in our houses, in our rooms. What are we? We're glory givers, right? It's not bad until it becomes a false idol or religion or something we worship. But we're made for this. I want you to see this. Um, when, when sin perverts affirmation glory in me, it makes me desperate for it. Love me. Like me, approve of me, tell me I'm good enough. How did I do? My whole identity and everything that I feel rises and falls on whether or not you affirm and approve of what I've done, right? You know that feeling? Am I the only one who ever experiences that? I see smile, 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 you don't. Okay, good. Um, Affirmation glory gets perverted very, very easily. Affirmation glory also gets perverted when, like my son, you tell him, good job, and you say, I am great. And then you begin to give glory to yourself, right? those Those are all broken. But this... This impulse to glory giving is completely broken in the Babylonians. Uh, they, they withheld glory from God intentionally. Not just because it was their father's religion. Do you hear that? I want you to understand this is different. They did it intentionally. And they took the glory for themselves. Babel's fourth sinful ambition was just blatant, simple rebellion against Yahweh. You even see in their words, what is their concern? What itch are they scratching? They don't want to be dispersed. They don't want to be separated. And so their entire motivation is in response, in rebellion against what they know God wanted them to do. Do you remember who built this tower, who led this effort? His name is Nimrod. Do you remember what Nimrod's name means? We shall rebel. That's what this means. That's what his name means. So Nimrod, his whole leadership philosophy, his entire way of living is based on this. We know what Yahweh wants, but we shall rebel. Now we don't actually know maybe what his birth name was, but this is the name that was given to him. Maybe his father gave it to him as a prophetic name. I don't know. But here, let's boil this down. They wanted their own glory and they wanted their own way. They're like children who never grow up. I want my glory, and I want it my way. So here's my question. What is your ziggurat? What is the thing you're pursuing or tempted to pursue in rebellion against God? You you may not be pursuing it now, but you know, like future you likely will take steps toward that. Like you're aware of it. What is that thing? Babel is this screaming lesson to God's people throughout millennia. You're capable of this. This impulse is in you. Watch out. And what did God's people do? They stole glory and they wanted it their way. I mean, it's like almost every chapter of the Old Testament is God's people doing something dumb, giving glory to other things, taking glory for themselves, doing it their own way, ignoring God's rules. And this is not what God wants for you. What's so sad is that the way of Babel is the way of Satan, and what you see is that throughout the Old Testament, it is so easy for God's people to buy into the way of the evil one. Take your own glory, do it your way. God doesn't know what he's talking about. It's better. Here's my encouragement for you. Whatever it is, name it, confess it, and kill it. As long as it's a secret, it will have future power over you. Number two in your notes, what does God think of my ziggurat? Verse five, and the Lord, he came down, to see the city and the tower which the children of man, literally the sons of Adam, had built. So here's my question. Is God aloof? 
Like, doesn't it make it sound like God is up in heaven taking some, like, cosmic nap, and then he wakes up because maybe he hears the sound of debauchery at the top of the ziggurat, right? And he's like, what's going down there? I wonder what these people are doing, okay? Let me just like help you understand how um, Old Testament narrative is written. They employ um, a rhetorical device, which is called irony, okay? Everything in Alana Smorset's song is actually technically not ironic, okay? They're just bad coincidences. So, So there's two things here happening regarding God's spatial distance, okay? Because there's a distance. God's way up there, the people are down here, and here's the first one. When God wants to show you just how absolutely ludicrous our little tiny little projects of self-glory are, he uses irony like here. Like this is a really great example. And so the idea here is that, that Nimrod and his people are like, we're gonna build this thing, this tower, it's gonna be amazing, it's gonna go up into the heavens, which is their way of saying the clouds, everyone's gonna applaud us, right? And God is like so far up, right? That even if he squints, he can't see it. He's like, what? What? It's like a human being looking at an ant mound, right? And they're like, that? Boom, nothing, all dead. You know, like, that's kind of what it's like. And for the human being, I'm like, I can take a bunch of little pieces of dirt and pile them on a pile, right? Like, anybody can do that. But for the ants, like, this is an architectural wonder, and yet God is so far above, he has to stoop down, and what he's saying in an ironic way is, you are so pathetic and small, it's adorable. Oh my gosh, I just want to give you a little hug. It's just, aw, aw, look what you built. Like, it's actually just embarrassing for the Babylites. It's, it's, it's wonderfully humorous. But number two, his, his, refle- his, his distance is a reflection of not just the spatial distance, it's not just irony, it's a reflection of the relational distance. I want you to catch this. Does God know what's happening in Babylon? Absolutely. Is God, like, ignorant? Is he, does he not care? No, not at all. Here's what God is saying. Here's what the Bible's trying to tell you. He knows, we already know he knows. But he's not in relationship with these people. So even when he comes down to watch what they're doing, he's not even obligated to help them. Like, they're not one. They're not together. There's the people down here doing their little anti-God thing, and there's God up in heaven. And God seems to be with the Shemites, you know, Ham's brother, right? He seems to be with them. He seems to a degree to be with the Japhethites. But the Hamites, like, God's not seeming to be engaged with them. Now, let me just, let me practically apply this to you for a moment, because, um, this is, this is a hard conversation for you to have. I want you to imagine somebody who rejects Jesus Christ comes to you and they say the following. Um, where was God when? Um, and it's a fair question, right? Totally fair question. I get it. Like throughout the panorama of history, life has been atrocious for many people and, and terrible unspeakable things have been done from human to human, image bearer to image bearer in profoundly terrible ways. And one of the questions that, that someone's gonna ask you is where was God? Now, I don't know that I would advocate you in the moment of someone's pain giving this answer, okay? But you need to know the answer, at least in your head. And at the right time, with the gospel of Jesus Christ and an offer for salvation, you have to be able to look at them and say, you said no to him. I'll tell you where he is. He's letting you do your thing. You pushed him away. Well, well God is obligated to fix my problems. They don't say that, but that's what it feels like, right? Right? What's interesting is that the scriptures, they just do not buy into the God concept of 21st century American pop culture that everybody believes and that we're tempted to buy into, right? And here's one of the foundational principles. If you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ, you are not a son or daughter of God and he has no obligation to you. 
that that is cold. I get it. Which is why you need to be very careful with how you wield that sword. But that is one of the hard realities. Now, notice you're asking yourself, well, where was God when my life fell to pieces as a follower of God? Different discussion. Maybe we'll get there. Turn it in as a Q&A podcast. We'll go there. Otherwise, I'm going to be here for another hour, and it's hot and beautiful, and you guys want to go do things. So, is God aloof? No. Verse 6. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Uh, you, if you don't know the end of the story, he scatters them all over the world, gives them different languages, but I want to I just show you something here. Had God not scattered the nations, three things would have happened globally. Number one, our modern technological advancements as a society would have happened thousands of years ago. Number two, the power of this tech would be consolidated under one worldwide human ruler who would use this power to crush anyone in opposition to him, particularly the lines of Shem and Japheth. But number three, the mocking spirit of Ham to his righteous father Noah, the mocking spirit, the rebellious spirit of Nimrod to Yahweh would turn necessarily into an agenda to obliterate the people of God wherever they found them all over the earth. Uh, they're not extreme ideas. What happens every single time mass amounts of power, land, and people are consolidated under one human being throughout history? They enslave, they kill, they oppress, repeat. Until a larger or more unified coalition of tribes or nations come against them, and then usually they crumble under the weight of their own arrogance. Uh, this is what the scriptures actually tell us is gonna happen at the, at the end of the world, if you will, before it's all said and done. That God will remove his restraining hand and another Nimrod will arise. Another Babylon will arise. Um, they may not call themselves Babylon, but it's the spirit, the spirit of Babylon. And God will allow them to be one language. He will bring them under one uh, vision of grandeur from a despot and a megalomaniac. Uh, he will bring the entire world together and then what happens inevitably, they turn all of their attention onto the people of God globally wherever they find them. Um, I wrote this down, I want to read it just, just so I could get it right. God was not concerned these Babylonians, these Babylonians could beat him. He was concerned for the world's population from here on out. God thought it far better for humanity and the gospel for 6,500 languages to be dispersed globally and for their tribes to be at constant war with each other than it is for one man to rule them all. Because of sin, these are the options. One man rules the whole world and oppresses. Or God scatters them and they war with each other. And for the sake of humanity and the gospel, God deemed it best that he scatter the entire world. So God's seen the inevitability of their genius. He takes action. Here's what happens in verse seven. Come, let us go down. Uh, it's interesting. This is hearkening back to that Genesis 1-2 language where, where God is saying, let us make man in our image, the Trinity. Um, what's about to happen is such a huge deal that the Trinity come together. They're on the same page with the decision. Here again, the Trinity comes together. Let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth 
forth, and they left off building the city. I want to share with you a couple did you knows. Did you know? Uh, the story of Babel actually makes incredible sense of global and historical linguistic trends. This is crazy. Where you, you need to know this. Uh, the Hamites were a Babel, not the Shemites or the Jephthites. It was the Hamites. And what's interesting is that globally, as you look over historical linguistic trends, which linguistics is the study of languages, you'll find that the vast majority of Shemites have a common linguistical root. The vast majority of the nations that came uh, from Japheth have a common linguistic root. But where you find the descendants of Ham, there seem to be no common linguistic core roots to their language. It's powerful. You find people of the same color genetically connected, and here's what you find. Their languages, their root linguistical structures don't have any connection to, the, to each other whatsoever. It's powerful. You literally watch historical and linguistic trends. God spreads them all over, creates in total what we now have about 6,500 languages globally, but you find something powerful happen. In fact, it just you look back in history and linguistics and science even begins to tell us something happened with this group of people where multiple languages globally developed. Number two, the story of Babel makes sense of unusually similar architectural styles in disconnected places around the world. Here's what you're going to find. Wherever the people of Ham went, ziggurats existed. Why are there ziggurats in South America? Have you thought about that? This same architectural style is found wherever the people of Ham are. And it's interesting, the same styles of worship, architectural building, rebellion against God, cult worship are found wherever you find ziggurats all over the world. And it's almost exclusively the people of Ham. Number three, God is actually, actually mitigating human suffering on scales we cannot even imagine. I want to come back to what I said a little while ago. The options are scatter them and have them be at war with each other or consolidate them and let one man, Nimrod, and his successors oppress humanity, enslave them, use them, and abuse them, and then ultimately turn on the people of God. Number four, this is a little, little sneak peek into Genesis chapter 11 and 12 when we meet Abraham in the fall. Did you know that they were rivals? And that out of these people came two very different um, religious systems that would change the world forever. I'm gonna hold you on pause on that one until September. <laughs> we'll come back to that. Verse nine, therefore its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused or literally Balal, he Balaled Babal. That, that's what it's saying. It's a play on words. He confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Here's how I want to close. Um, as Babylon and Babylon symbolize humanity's rebellion against God, um, I, I want to read to you uh, and give you a huge encouragement of what God will do to all future Babylons and what he has done to past Babylons. Now, you're gonna hear these scriptures. I'm gonna put them on the screen so you can, you can know what I'm actually reading. I'm gonna read all of these. And you're gonna be tempted to feel the weight of these negatively, but here's what I want you to understand. When God eradicates Babylon once and for all in whatever iteration it takes, it means you are victorious with Jesus Christ. And what God has to do is eradicate Babel Babylon, from human history before righteousness can grow on this earth. I want you to hear the destiny of Babylon, and I want you to know this. If this is their destiny, you are on the, are on the victorious, conquering side of Jesus Christ if you've placed your faith in him. Revelation 14.8, another angel, a second followed, saying, fallen, fallen, 
Fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Revelation 16.9, the great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Revelation 17.5, do you think Revelation has like a theme going on here? And on her forehead was written the name, was written a name of mystery, quote, Babylon the great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Revelation 18.2. And he called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, and a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. Revelation 18.10-11. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Revelation 18, 21 to 24. Then a mighty angel took up a stone, like a great millstone, he threw it into the sea, saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians of flute players and of trumpeters will be heard in you no more, and a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more, and the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more, and the light of a lamp will shine in you no more, and the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will be heard in you no more, for your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all the nations were deceived by your sorcery, and in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on earth. Babel loses. And here's the meta story of scripture. You follow Babel, you die. You follow Jesus, you live. Let's pray together. Father, there is a Babylonian in every single one of us. And we confess right now, we are no better our heart's inclination, our impulses are to give glory to things other than you, to steal your glory. And yet you have loved us. I am mind-numbed that you plucked out sinners like us, set your affections on us, covenanted every second of history, future from the moment you save us to us to never leave us, to never forsake us. Us who are such rebels. And then not only that, but you form us and change us and you take more and more day by day, day, week by week, year by year, decade by decade, this rebellious spirit out of us and slowly you just kill it. You give us love for you. It's unbelievable, mind blown, God, that you would do that for us. Lord, there, there are some here who have never heard the end, the destination, the final loss of Babel, Lord. They've never trusted in Jesus Christ. God, I pray you would show them that salvation is through faith alone in Jesus and that you would cause them to be adopted to be your sons and your daughters and they would be brought into the family and no longer the family of Babel. 
God, I don't know what culture looks like in the future. I don't know when you're coming back. I hope it's soon, but should you tarry for hundreds or thousands of years, we will declare you to be infinitely wise, but would you, would you give us courage and wisdom and love in this current generation? Would you teach us how to be a bright light even, even if we should end up living in Babylon again? Would you give us what we need to continue to be glory givers to you? As we turn our hearts and minds to just the cross, I want to say thank you because you took our punishment on yourself. And we're grateful because we never could have done it without you. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen.